Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. I'm Dave Delaney. If you haven't noticed, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus over the last several months. Uh, A big revelation was found. I have ADHD, and that explains a whole lot. And of course, naturally, as a veteran podcaster, I started another podcast all about it, and it's called ADHD Wise Squirrels, and you can find it at wisequirrels.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search ADHD Wise Squirrels. Pop over and have a listen. Let me know what you think. Thanks. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. I I think when I started in business, I didn't feel that confident. So I needed to really make myself feel very important. But over the years, as I got more and more legitimately confident, then I didn't need to show off so much or I didn't need to be the central focus. And I could be very honest and transparent about you know, who I am and who I'm not and really just do a much deeper dive into the work itself uh, and ultimately the needs of the people we serve. Nice. 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 Nice with Dave Delaney. Welcome to the Nice Podcast, a show all about communication, collaboration, and becoming better leaders. Today, I'm chatting with New York Times bestselling author, co-founder, and CEO of Heroic. I've always had, I, I think I have like a speech impediment, but every time I say, I try to say heroic public speaking, I have to, trouble with the word heroic for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe you can help me with that, Michael. <laughs> well, no, it actually, it's not, it, it's not uncommon. The R is one of the most difficult words uh, to pronounce, yeah. or different letters to ma- pronounce rather. And so it's the reason that um, so many different dialects uh, change the way the R is sound is used. So in Boston, they use the R when they shouldn't, and then they drop the R when they should use it. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, New York has their own way of dealing with ours. And of course the Brits. Yes. And pirates. You're not, it's nothing wrong. It's totally fine. fine. (laughs) I said, and pirates too. Yeah. Okay. Let me get back into this intro. I'm already screwing everything up. Uh, Michael's latest book is the referable speaker, which he co-authored with Andrew Davis, which, which I just finished. And hopefully my Amazon review should be appearing any, any hour, hopefully. Uh, but it is an excellent book and I highly recommend it for everybody. So with that long, uh, awkward intro, Michael, welcome to nice. Thank you so much. So what is the nicest thing someone has done for you recently? Oh, gosh. Well, it just so happens that yesterday was Father's Day. Ah. So I got some really special things yesterday, and it was just the most delightful day. And I felt just so at peace, which is something that's really important to me and something I generally don't feel. Uh, So that was (laughs) uh, a real blessing. And uh, one of my kids, uh, Jacob, uh, he loves cooking. He's 16. He made me... uh, 
steamed dumplings from scratch. He made the dough. He rolled it out. I mean, it was just amazing. And Amy and I uh, went to town. We rode our electric bikes and we went to art galleries. Nice. mid-century modern furniture, and all of it was just so nice. Everybody was so nice because they were so happy to be back, you know, without masks and, uh, and and interacting in a way that felt safe and comfortable. So it was very delightful. That's very nice. How do you get – so he, you said he's 16? 16, yeah. Okay, so my son is 15, and, like, you know, he, he – <laughs> And with all due respect, and I love him, but but making me food, making him sell food is challenging enough. So I need to know what's happening here in the Port household to get this going on. Because no, you know, I actually really appreciate that you 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 phrased it in the way that you did because it just reminds me of how each person is such a unique individual, mm. and as parents, we often think there's something that. Uh, we need to do to fix our kids because there's something about each one of them that's a little broken. <laughs> and and fundamentally, I don't think there – and there may not be anything for – first of all, there may be nothing to fix, nothing wrong with them. Right. Uh, and, uh, and secondly, it may have nothing to do with us and we may have no actual influence over it. So Jake is a great example. When Jake was little, he ate three foods, pizza, macaroni – and pizza pockets, which is just basically pizza and macaroni in a little <laughs> pocket. So right. maybe two things, if we're being honest. Uh, no, sorry, he ate bagels as well. Okay. He ate bagels, but and then and then you know when he was uh, about twelve, he started experimenting a little bit more with some different foods. Um, you know, Amy and I got married, and uh, Jake. Uh, then um, earned two more siblings. And one of his siblings was a little bit more adventurous with food and Mm. Jake's competitive. So I think he's like, well, okay, I'll try that too. And he realized he wasn't going to die when he ate the thing that, (laughs) you know, before he thought was disgusting. And so, uh, you know, one thing led to another and he's just been exploring it himself and he watches cooking shows and YouTube videos and uh, he's making kombucha. He actually just brewed beer. He can't even drink it, but he's so interested in the chemical fermentation process. <laughs> and oh, that's else like, yeah, that's what he told you, right? Yeah, good, <laughs> one. good one, kid. Your dad bought into your, I'm interested in the chemical process of the fermentation. <laughs> no, really, it's actually true. He really uh, is interested in the food science. So my point is that that's all him. Mm. Uh, you know, I've certainly tried to encourage him but I've tried to encourage lots and lots of things that he has had absolutely no interest in, right? Uh, and um, and I can't move the needle on. So, uh, so I guess sometimes it's just important to remember that each each one of us, just like all of our kids, are they're gonna they're gonna chart their own path. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, I love that though. I love that he's he's taking the initiative to to do that kind of kind of stuff. And I think, I think having, uh, new siblings, like having that sort of, uh, constant in a good way, but like the constant influence of someone else. Cause I think like with my kids, they're both, well, my son is more picky certainly than my, my daughter by a long way. But at the same time, I think he, um, 
I, I get the feeling like once he starts dating and things like he's going to figure it out pretty quickly, you know, yeah, like sure, you don't want to be, sure. you don't want to just have Nutella when you take out someone out for dinner or something. <laughs> unless he meets a, unless he meets a girl who only likes Nutella. Well, that's true. He might be able to arrange his world uh, quite carefully, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's, you're right though. Priorities change. And so uh, the things that we're willing to, uh, to expose ourselves to, um, broadens often. Yeah. And talk, let's talk a little bit about priorities changing. Like for you, sure. so your, your background, well, I don't want to get, I don't want to say it cause it's your story, but like, tell me a little bit about like where Michael Portis actually from, like, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Manhattan. Okay. There's a few of us that were born in the city and raised in the city mm. and, uh, it made for a really really interesting, uh, you know, a formative uh, period of my life uh, growing up with in New York with a lot of independence and uh, really the, you know, cultural center, I think, of, of the country. Uh, not everybody would agree with that, of course, but... Uh, some would say the world. Uh, yeah, some would. I mean, New York says it's the capital of the world, you know. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> it's the most egocentric place uh, you could be from, clearly. And, uh, but it, but it, but... But to a certain degree, I think it's it's probably informed me and the way that I see the world more than uh, almost anything else that's uh, come since. I think that where I'm from really did have a big impact on uh, on my programming, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think a lot of it served me. Uh, fortunately, I went to a really interesting, very progressive school when I was a kid that focused on ethics and critical thinking. And, um, and then after high school, I, I moved to Tulane for four years to go to college. Oh, excuse me, I moved to New Orleans and I went to Tulane to go to college. And then I came back to New York to do a master's degree in acting at the NYU graduate acting program. So once again, I was back in New York. Right. But, but I moved to Bucks County about 17 years ago. It's a, it's a small, um, very quaint part of Pennsylvania that's about an hour and a half north of Manhattan or an hour and a half south of Manhattan and 45 minutes north of Philly mm. and um, my wife Amy and I live here and we work here and we have our business here and, and we feel really fortunate to live in, in such a lovely community but I never would have imagined that that I would be out here when I was younger I just think that's one of the things that when you look back on your life and I'm only 50 at this point but still I've had a couple years under my belt there are so many things that I never could have predicted in a million years. And so even, again, going back to the kids, you know, my father, when I was a kid, would say things to me, and my father's the sweetest man. He very rarely would say things like this, but I remember, you know, a couple of times he would say things like, look, if you don't start reading more, you're really never going to amount to much. Mm. And he was an academic and I loved TV. I wanted to sit there and watch the TV all the time. Right. Now, of course, I ultimately went into acting and then developed a business around performance. So some of those years in front of the TV may actually helped uh, influence my career. But I certainly understood what he meant. I mean, I, I do now understood what he was afraid of. But then I went and wrote uh, nine books and a couple of them were not so bad and made it onto the New York Times bestseller list and the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And I still don't see myself as a writer, mm. even though... I've become an author and sold more books than most authors uh, 
you know, probably ever will. And I feel very fortunate about that. But I, I, I still have that idea of myself as a kid who, you know, could, would barely write a five paragraph essay in, in school. And so it's just another example of how really we, we're going to chart our own course and we're going to find our stride at different points in our life. And some people find it really quite young and some will find it later on. Mm. And we go through many different chapters. And, uh, and I love that the theme of your podcast is about being nice because, yeah. you know, when I look back on the chapters that I'm most disappointed with in myself, uh, it was either because I wasn't nice to other people as much as in, to the degree that I would have liked to, or I wasn't nice to myself. And, and, you know, it was hard on myself and, and, you know, working on those two things, being kinder to other people and being kinder to yourself, uh, can pay dividends, of course, both in your personal life and in your professional life. Yeah. And the key, well, the keynote that I've, uh, been, I've started delivering, um, very much inspired by the work that you've done and the training I've, I've had from you as well with HPS and Amy and your team, uh, is called the ROI of nice, the return on investment mm. of nice. And it breaks down into three sections, self stakeholders and society. And so the self, obviously uh, to your point, you know, if you're not nice to yourself, then, then it's going to be really tough for you to be nice to the people in your life. So, um, but you said yeah. you're not, you weren't like, so book yourself solid, which was your first book, which became, I think number two in the world at the time. Um, yeah. which is, which is an amazing thing came out in what was it it was 2008 or six 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 yeah six and Mm -hmm. so you know but you you went as an actor you very much at least i might be putting words in my in your mouth but i would assume that you very much were an actor you told people i mean you were acting you had credentials you have your imdb Mm -hmm. cred um so you considered yourself an actor and said you were an actor but as a writer you said you never considered yourself a writer even though you had a, you know a best-selling book at the time and, and many more why didn't you consider yourself a writer hey you're listening to the nice podcast with dave delaney that's me visit futureforth.com to learn how we can transform the communication at your organization and if you need a speaker for your next online event or your in-person conference, are we doing in-person conferences yet? Uh, soon, I hope. Uh, you can visit DaveDelaneySpeaks.com and uh, you'll learn more about working with me there. All right, let's get back to the show. Or an author. I think, well, I think it's hard to... I mean, now I see myself as an author because I, I can see the books on the shelf. So it's become a fact. Yes. But I still don't see myself as a writer. There's a, to me, there's a, a slight bit of difference. And it's just some programming. You know, it's like it's just some old scripts that I have around it. Because when I was an actor, I very much considered myself an actor for a few reasons. Number one, I was trained at one of the best institutions in the country for acting. So I felt like I had, you know, some real tops. Hmm. Number two, I was actually working and making my living as an actor. And hmm. number three, I felt really good at it, meaning I, I, I felt like it was something I could do well, naturally. Yeah. When I, when I think about uh, writing, writing is not something that I think I do well, hmm. which may sound uh, strange given that there are books that I write that people like to read and, and they, they say – this 
this is really good. I, these are great stories. This is well written. Yeah. But when I'm writing, it doesn't feel to me as pleasurable as it does when I am, say, doing a masterclass and teaching performance or when I was an actor and I was acting. The, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't come as naturally to me. Now, somebody might say, well, why do you do it? I said, well, because it's, a, it's one way to communicate with my audience. Mm. The people that I serve, uh, you know, uh, they consume a number of different types of products and services in pursuit of their objectives. And one of them is books. And so I didn't go into, I didn't go into book writing as, as for, you know, to have a career in book writing. I never had a dream of being an author. Mm. I just in the early 2000s, just started experimenting with the idea, could I write well enough to communicate with the people that I want to serve around the needs that they have that I can help them with? That was the question that right. I had. And I think it's important because very often we make these judgments that we can or can't do something before we even raise the question. Hmm. And and I think that the best outcomes are usually a result of some sort of quest or investigation that is launched by a compelling question. Hmm. So for example, anytime that I'm working on a speech with a client, I want to know what question this speech is answering. Hmm. Or if if I if I look at a book and think about do I want to read this book, I I want to know what question is this author answering? Mm. And and so for me, when I started investigating this idea of writing, I just wanted to answer that question. So I just started practicing. I just did a little bit of writing every day. And sometimes I'd write about something specific that I thought would help my audience so that it was advice-oriented. Sometimes I would just write about my breakfast because I didn't have anything else that I felt like writing about. So I would just write about <laughs> how I made breakfast that day yeah. just to build some craft, just to build some skills. And what I discovered as I went on that investigation, because it was an investigation, I didn't have any expectations for myself. I, I didn't set any predetermined outcomes. But Because when you set predetermined outcomes, uh, you're often disappointed about those outcomes if you set them too early. So if mm. I said, well, I have to write a, a certain amount every day and it has to be good enough that I could publish it. Well, that's, that's going to be a really hard outcome to achieve. That's, that's maybe not attainable. And then of course I would be disappointed, but if I didn't have any expectation with this, with respect to the quality of the work, then I'm not worried about it. The only thing I was trying to do was just investigate the writing and see, well, what, what 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 do I learn? And what I did learn is that because I'm dyslexic, and this is one of the reasons that I actually don't love writing so much, mm. because I'm dyslexic, I spent so many of my early years trying to organize information in a way that made sense. The way that most teachers presented or information, the way the textbooks presented the information, often was confusing to me. And so I needed to do a better job than the person presenting the information or the book that was presenting the information in organizing it mm. in a way that offered a better context for me so that I could process the information more thoroughly, more completely, 
and then be able to act on it. So it turns out that the years of doing that in order just to cope with the regular learning environment around me because of that supposed disability that I had ended up being something that in my work as an author was very helpful for my readers because what I've been able to do is to take complex concepts Hmm. and organize them in such a way that makes them more consumable because that's what I needed to do to learn for myself. So it turns out that that particular methodology that I developed for myself seems to be helpful for the people that I serve. So this is why even though I am an author, I still don't feel like a writer because it's not something that comes easily to me or that I enjoy doing. I can palate it. I can stomach it. Right. I can do it effectively uh, in pursuit of the objectives that I have and the, and the way that I want to serve my particular audience. So, you know, but at the end of the day, it, would I only want to write and do none of the other things that I do? No, that wouldn't be uh, something that I would choose to do. I, I see there are other things that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to mean interrupt. I, w- I was going to say with uh, part of your writing exercises initially, like early on of, of just writing, as you were saying, um, sounds, you know, kind of inspired possibly from the artist's way from Julia Cameron's work and her, you know, the, are you familiar with that book? I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The three, I think in the morning pages, it's called where you write yep. three pages of, and it could be anything. It could be a, it could be a recipe. It could be whatever you want. And then yeah. you can even chuck it in the, in the recycling bin afterwards. It doesn't really matter. It's just this idea of, of writing and just getting your, getting in the momentum of that and getting your brain kind of working that way. But I see, yeah. I see for you though, very quickly, I see for you and, and I, 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 you know, I always absolutely love seeing you in person and, and catching up over coffee and so on, because I feel like we're, we're kindred spirits in a way. And, and I feel that, um, the way you, the way you explain your, yourself as a writer or as an author, um, but not calling yourself that per se, I, I see that and what I'm driving at is for me, I need to be around people. And for me, performing on stage in front of an audience and then shaking hands and kissing babies afterwards with masks at six feet apart, of course. Uh, <laughs> but for me, I need that gratification. And I can mm-hmm. see sort of in a similar way that you probably need that too. Like even like performing, whether it's if it's in film, you've got a crew, you've got people on set who can applaud you and your cast members. Or if it's on stage, of course, you have an audience, whether it's delivering a keynote or you know a play. And I'm I'm kind of curious because this book, the referable speech that you've recently uh, released, that book was co-written with Andrew Davis. So I'm curious, like for that, because that was your first co-written book, mm-hmm. was that experience better for you as a writer than maybe writing the other books because you had Andrew's, you had his company to bounce ideas from, or am I way yeah. off in left field? No, you're not. Well, the only thing I just would want to. Um, just adjust is that it's not the first book that I've co-authored. Uh, it's just the first book I've co-authored with Andrew. And in fact, you're really on to something. I, in fact, never do any projects by myself. Full stop, period. Mm. Not even when I was starting out in business and I had I couldn't even hire anybody. I would just partner with other people who found 
what I could bring to the project valuable than I found what they could bring to the project valuable. And part of that, again, goes back to, I think, the fact that I was dyslexic, uh, you know, throughout my, um, I mean, I still am, but, you know, mm. throughout my early formative learning years. Yeah. Uh, because I find that I'm much more effective when I get to work with other people who are really interesting and bring complementary strengths. You know, those people who say, well, if I don't do it myself, it's not going to get done right. Yes. I've never, I've never thought like that. I, I just never thought like that. I always thought, oh my gosh, I need to work with other people who are so much better than me at these things. I don't know how to do this thing. Mm. This is not really how my brain works. Let me find someone who does. Because I'm very confident in the things that I do well. Mm. I know the value that I can bring. So I love partnering with people who can bring value in other areas. And I think in order to be a good partner, you've got to know that you bring value mm. and also love the value that the other people bring. It can never be a competition. Uh, one, one of my um, uh, friends, also a, an HBS grad alum, uh, is a woman named Andrea Lee. And I remember her saying something once about like the best business partners partnerships are the ones where each person thinks they got the better end of the deal. <laughs> great. I love that. You know? Yeah, that's I great. That was really cute. Yeah. So, uh, so, I, so yes, I absolutely love that collaborative um, experience. And I've set my company up that way. I've set my, my family life up that way. I've set uh, my, uh, my, my hobbies up that way, my passions, etc. But what, something you said earlier uh, resonated with me about uh, you know, the writing exercise that I did every day, mm. you mentioned the, the, that, you know, that, um, that that's something that was, that was mentioned in the artist's way. Yeah. And, um, and it's something that I think is worth considering, not just in, in pursuit of a new, the development of new craft, but, but many aspects of our life. It, it's, it's, you know, in our personal relationships, in our romantic relationships, in uh, in the way that we take care of our health, sometimes just a little bit of maintenance is really the the most effective approach. Mm. So, you know, you don't have like if you want to exercise, you don't have to do it uh, to compete in a CrossFit Open or to run a marathon. You can just say, like, what do I feel like doing for 20 minutes today? Like, all right, I'll just put on some music and dance around. Mm -hmm. you, you just So you're not like, well, I'm trying to burn exactly 622 calories. I want to get my <laughs> steps on my watch. You right. know, that's not you're, – you're not outcome-focused that way. You're experience-focused. And you say, oh, I'm just going to see what happens if I decide to do some kind of movement for 20 minutes a day. So I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I'll make it up. Because, you know, it's just like when you don't know what to write, I'll write about what I had for breakfast. Right. So you don't always have to have a plan that you're following when you're investigating or experimenting. And I think this is, this is one of the things that Andrew and I wrote about in The Referable Speaker, now the book that just came out last week. And this book is really just for speakers who want to be professional speakers or are already professional speakers. If you're not interested in speaking on the circuit, whether you get paid up front or on the back end, then the book's probably not for you. That's it's really a very, um, very specific book. Mm. But but a lot of the concepts that we address 
are relevant for people in many different fields that are service-oriented. So, for example, this particular concept that I want to reference is applicable to the speakers that we're writing for in the book, but it also applies uh, to anybody that is in a field that is filled with experts. So consultants, Mm -hmm. for example. One of the things that we see on the speaking circuit is that people who are seen as experts are generally relegated to the breakout room. Because the breakout room is usually where an expert delivers a how-to type speech. Tips and tricks, hacks, best practices. Hmm. It's often a, a speech or presentation that is reflective of the present day. Here's how things are done today. And people, you know, take lots of notes. Oh, that's interesting. That's good to know now that I'm getting into this business. It'll be helpful to know what those best practices are. Great. Okay. So it can be a very helpful session. But on the keynote stage, generally, the, the speakers that are put there, they deliver a how-to-think type speech. Mm-hmm. A speech that generally challenges the status quo and offers a new approach, a different perspective, another way of seeing the world so that that speaker helps the audience create the future. So the how-to type speaker, the expert helps the audience see what the future and what the present is today. They, they offer a, a reflection of the present, but that keynoter who's delivered how to think differently type speech is helping that audience create the future. And so the expert has been commoditized. Mm. The visionary is the one who gets the attention because as opposed to the expert, the visionary is always on a quest to answer questions that Google can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. To provide people different ways of seeing the world. So, so the reason that I, that I wanted to mention this is because experts sell solutions that they already have. Visionaries answer questions that Google can't, but that people desperately want to answer. And so they usually start with some sort of big question. And then they go on an investigation to try to answer that question rather than thinking, oh, I already have all the answers. I know what the answers are. And that's, that's why this approach to doing a little bit of writing every day or a little bit of moving every day, uh, some sort of investigative process where you aerate new ideas to try to uncover new approaches for the people you serve around the challenges that they have helps you come up with visionary ideas, visionary thinking, and new approaches that help people feel different, think different, and act different. 
Well, you wrote in the book, audiences want a glimpse into new research, new experiences, and unexpected insight that they wouldn't get if they didn't attend, which is exactly what you're saying is, is yeah. by spending that time writing or researching or working on that stuff and just spending a little time, it gets you thinking about it in different ways. And, you know, I love how you talk about different frameworks in the book as well. It's a great book and I recommend, you know, all, all speakers listening to it, definitely read it and these different frameworks. You know, one thing I've, I've realized over the years, I kind of came on this myself where I realized, you know, for the most part with a few exceptions here and there, but for the most part, everything has been done. Like everything out there has been done. And so it's a matter of you taking it and bring and and make bringing your personality to it and your take on it. And then, you know, and then, uh, and then teaching what you learn, but with your own, your own voice and your own ex examples and things and making it yours. Hmm. Do you see that as well? Do you think? Oh, I do certainly see uh, a component uh, to it. You know, one, what, what we focused on in this book was the idea of being referable, meaning being someone that others refer to hmm. or being someone that produces a product that every time somebody sees it, somebody wants it. Hmm. Because I think that, you know, we, I don't know what it was like to live in a different age. You know, we often say like, well, in these times, I, I don't know what old times, I don't, I never lived in any other time. These are the times I live. Right. But what I do know about the times that, that we live in is that when people often move into a new discipline, the first thing they want to learn is how do I sell myself in this discipline? Mm. How do I market this? How do I build this business? And then they start to look at, oh, how do I make something that other people want? I think it's backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think unless you have something that other people want, why would you spend any time marketing it? Mm, yeah. It just, I mean, yeah, I understand like, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you're, you know, there are lots and lots of companies out there that can make a lot of money selling really mediocre or poor products, uh, but they market the heck out of them and, you know, and they can sell a lot of them. But yeah. that is is not – but but somebody who is in a service business or is in a, a consultant or a speaker or an advisor or, you know, in some other position where the work they do has an immediate and impactful – um and profound uh, uh, changes associated with it when you're serving other people, that's not how you want to approach the business that you're developing. I wouldn't think usually you, you want to produce the best product you can. Yeah. So the question is, what is the formula for, uh, so I'll give you an example. So when we started this book, we, we, we had, we, we, we tried to figure out what's our quest, like, what are we trying to solve here? Like, why would we even do a book? And for us, the there was only one question that we wanted to answer. The only one question that we thought was worth spending a few years doing a book about, because we worked, we wrote, we took us two years to write this book. Hmm. The one question was, what's the formula for building 
a self-sustaining, successful speaking business. Now, I didn't know if there was. I've been in this business for decades, mm-hmm. but nobody's ever posited that there's a formula for doing it. You know, usually people say, well, you know, you just got to do enough uh, chicken dinner speeches and Elks clubs, meetings, and then eventually you too can become a successful speaker. Right. And others will say, well, you got to build your, you know, your personal brand and you got to build a big social media following and you got to write that best selling book and then you'll become a really successful speaker. You know, someone else says, well, you just got to figure out a way to get famous and then you'll become a successful speaker. You know, all these things that people hear and they go, yeah, I don't, okay, I don't. I don't know if I can do any of that, but I'll give it a try. But ultimately, none of those things can guarantee that you, you know, can build a successful speaking business. There's, there's no formula there. So we had said, we tried to figure, is there a formula? Like, can we engineer an actual formula? And we think we did. Yeah. We think we did. It doesn't mean every single person will be able to do it, but we now believe that we've articulated what makes a speaker, somebody who every time they give a speech gets stage side leads, which Mm -hmm. are inquiries to deliver that same speech somewhere else for a fee. And if you produce enough stage side leads, you leverage the power of compounding gigs, and then you'll build a very healthy referral tree over time. And when someone says, well, what do you do for your marketing? You can say, I pick up the phone. (laughs) Yeah. Because because the, the gigs you do produce the gigs you do, the gigs you get, get you more gigs. And that's, that's the, that requires that what you're delivering is referable. So in our business, you can deliver a great speech. That's not a referable speech. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's something that is, unless you understand what the formula is, you're not going to understand what makes a speech referable. And I mention this because it applies to almost every service business that I can think of. It's so hard to market your way to success in a business. It's much easier, I think, to build a successful business if you have something that other people talk about. But it's certainly challenging. It takes a lot of hard work to build the thing that is so good that other people talk about. But that's really where the best work is done. That's where the most important time is spent. Because, for example... Heroic Public Speaking, our business is a referral-only organization because we've created a product that when people do it, you know, they take our graduate program. Afterwards, they tell other people to come do it. And so we put the majority of our time into the continued improvement of the actual experience we provide. And then we let that experience do the marketing for the business. That's a, that's, and that's what... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say at some point there, you had, I don't know if it was a revelation or whether it was just an aha moment or whether you just kind of eased your way into this. But to, to what you're saying here, like in the book, you wrote, don't look at myself as the product. Look at the experience I deliver as the pot, as the product. And to that point, you know, I, I look at, I look at when I look at Michael Port and I look at, at the work you've done. 
at some point, and I think where you you probably uh, hit the jackpot in in the sense of like a, a wonderful business doing you know your life's probably your best work ever, which is HPS, I believe, and 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 I, I've been there firsthand and experienced training with you and Amy and the team, and and you know I wrote a review, and if like hands down, I, I recommend it to other other speakers, highly recommend it to other people because it is absolutely an incredible experience, and and so. I have no doubts uh, in my mind, but I, 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 at some point, I think Michael Port took a bit of a, a back seat, and rather to the to that quote from the book, and to the point that you're making, you kind of eased a little bit away from your personal brand, which was a solid personal brand. You're right there on the cover of the books. You blogged and had content on your website at Michael Port, and you shifted to to HBS. What was that? Was it a revelation that you realized, wait, it's it's bigger than me? And, and yeah. you know, well, tell me about that. Oh, gosh, it sure was. Well, first of all, what, you know, when you, when you start a new endeavor, you're pretty blind. Mm. And you are often just uh, copying what you see other people in the industry do. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason I started writing books in the first place, because, you know, when I started in the early 2000s, there was really only a few ways that uh, people who were in the coaching or training business could reach larger audiences. And one of those ways was through a book. There was no podcasting. I mean, certainly you could pick up a radio show, but that was fewer and far between. It's not sure. like you could just start your own podcast. Um, there was no social media. It was just a very different landscape. Mm. So I just copied what other people did. And then I saw people like, um, gosh, what's his name? Well, the Tony Robbins of the world sure. uh, and others whose faces were on the cover of the books. And I thought, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do too. You know, build this brand around me. Mm. Uh, and, you know, look, when I went into acting in my, uh, in college and then, you know, started working after graduate school, uh, I, I didn't go into acting because I didn't want attention. Let's be honest about that. I yeah. don't think many people go into acting because they don't want people <laughs> to watch them, pay attention to them and clap for them. So I right. was in, I was really interested in the approval and the attention. Like I loved that. I thought that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I pretended I didn't care about it, but I think if I'm being honest, I did. Hmm. And and so when I, when I left acting and I went into the business world, uh, I spent about five years uh, on the fitness in the fitness industry, mm. and and then when I went back, when I went into consulting, I, I thought, I, I think I was driven by that need to build something of my own that was centered around me, you know, that narcissistic, you know. Uh, I want more attention kind of thing. Well, not just that, but in your defense, you're also there. There's a thinking that you're not, you know, you can either, and with all due respect to people with jobs, I don't mean any, any negative side to it, but you are building someone else's dream. You're right. Yeah. Like you have to take yeah, leadership yeah, sure, in your own sure. life. So yeah. 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 Sure. I, I just, I think though, I mean, I think though when I think about the choices I made in terms of how I built my business, I really tried to build it on this idea that, oh, you've got to be seen as famous mm. in order to be successful in this industry. Sure. Because I think that, and I think, because I think that's what I saw out there. I thought, oh, well, it, these people seem really famous. So that's why they're successful. So I have to 
become better known. If I'm better known, then I'll be more successful. But I think it jumps the sh- it jumps the shark or jumps the ship or the bridge or whatever you jump. <laughs> because what you're missing, what I was missing there was producing something that people talked about that wasn't me. Right. Because that that has longevity. That is something that uh, is ultimately more substantial and more sustainable. Because, um, and so, you know, it worked. Don't get me wrong. I And and I'll, I'll, I will give myself some credit. I think I built some pretty great products. I think Book Yourself Solid is a, is a really exceptional piece of intellectual property. It is. You know, that was the first big piece of intellectual property that I created. But, but I still was building around this Michael Port brand. But then after about a decade, I, I came to this realization that there was, I, that I hated, I really did, I'll use the word hate. Like I hated the insipid nature of promoting myself as the thing that was important. Mm-hmm. It just, it just felt insignificant to me. It didn't feel meaningful. Is this, a, is this after, or not after, but like early days entrepreneurship or is this after acting? Cause as an actor, I mean, if you're not <laughs> number one, no, no, this then that's a problem. After about 10 years. Yeah. This is about after 10 years of entrepreneurship. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and also it, 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 I think it coincided with my work with working with Amy, my mm-hmm. wife and bringing her into the business and giving her, um, uh, and sharing the business with her. Yeah. Because now, it, you know, if I wanted to give create space for her, well, I need to move aside. Not completely, but I have got yeah. to find some more room for her. Uh, I can't, you know, take up all the oxygen in the room. So that, I think ultimately, I think that it was an influence. And, um, and I also thought that, I, I think I felt so, I felt so confident in the work that we were doing around public speaking and training for keynoters that it didn't need to be about me anymore. Right. And I think that was probably the biggest shift. I I think when I started in business, I didn't feel that confident. So I needed to really make myself feel very important. But over the years, as I got more and more legitimately confident, then I didn't need to show off so much or I didn't need to be the central focus and I could be very honest and transparent about, you know, who I am and who I'm not and really just do a much deeper dive into the work itself uh, and ultimately the needs of the people we serve. Uh, even, Even to the point where we choose the colors of the clothes we wear so that our students are the ones who are the most colorfully dressed and stand out the most. Oh, that's interesting. Where did you come up with that idea? That's brilliant. Well, I, when I, I, it, it wasn't something that took a lot for me. It was just, I know when I do, when I put a student on stage and I'm working with them, I'm, I'm entertaining the audience at the same time. We may have a large audience who's watching the coaching. So there's an entertainment value that I provide. Mm in addition to the experience of the audience watching the student transform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those two things are important, but I have to make sure that my entertainment value when doing the teaching 
doesn't overshadow the experience that the students have of watching the transformation of the speaker on stage. And this is why you took a step away from acting, right? Like, or, excuse me, from, from delivering, from speaking. Cause Correct. you, you sort of took a, cause you didn't want to be, at least my understanding was you didn't want to be getting the gigs that you were training speakers to get. Yeah. Well, there's like a let, conflict. There. So I, it was a conflict. So I was sitting at the table with Jay Bear, who is one of the most working speakers in the business uh, today. And we were, yeah. we were working on an opening section for his speech. And I had an idea that I just thought would slay. It would just, it would just be a great opening bit. Hmm. And for a half a second, I thought, maybe I should hold on to that one in case I want to use it, because that's good. <laughs> it, it wasn't actually something about his IP. It was just like a device for opening the speech. Sure. And, and that's the second I knew that I had to retire from keynoting because I can't have any conflict of interest. Now, I, I thought about it for a second, then I said, no, 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 of course, I'm going to tell him what it is. And I did. But I also knew that I didn't want to hold anything back. If, if somebody's hiring me to direct their speech or work with them on a script, they have to know that every idea I have is going to be theirs. There won't be anything held back for me or for some other client. Anything that comes to my mind, I've got to give them. Yeah. And also, I didn't want any students ever feeling like they had to compete with me for a gig. So it would be like Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal competing against each other in the Grand Slams, except Federer is also Rafa's coach. Right. <laughs> right. This would be weird. Yeah. Uh, and this way, the speakers that I work with never have to worry that they're going to lose out on a gig to me who they're paying to help them get those gigs. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. It's, like, it. it's the same reason I wouldn't hire a financial advisor who has any conflict of interest uh, you know, in anything that they are suggesting I purchase. And I should tell our listeners here, by the way, that a few years back, Michael and I were speaking at the same conference or at, a, at the same conference. And afterwards, we were talking in a small group, you and a few of the other speakers, myself. And uh, somehow we got up to talking about uh, retirement and, and, and finance, personal finance and things. And it was kind of <laughs> it was incredibly embarrassing for me. And I'm sure it was for, for some of the other folks who basically admitted we didn't really have a lot of plans and you were like, and I just want to share this with everybody. You, you instantly said, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to watch this documentary, go to YouTube, look this up, watch this BBC thing, read this book, then get that book and then set up a Vanguard account and blah, 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 blah. And you gave us this list. And then not only that, but afterwards that night I got an email from you. And to the rest of the speakers saying, Hey guys, I know I said this really quickly. Here's everything. No affiliate links, no skin in the game, but you were just so sweet and kind to do this. And it really stood out to me. And straight away, I was like, this guy's just the best, but you gave us all this great insight into, and not, and I'm not suggesting you were saying like, bet on this, on this stock, go all the, go all in on this thing. <laughs> you were like, diversify, diversify and never Good look. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Dogecoin. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but, but, and you know, and, and we've talked offline about, about stuff like this, uh, since, and, uh, man, I am so thankful. Like Heather, 
my wife and I, you know, we've, we've watched a bunch of the documentaries. We do our finances every weekend. Now we like, we're way, way more on the ball with all of this stuff. And, uh, that wouldn't probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you. So, and your insight there. So thank you for that. Oh, that means the world to me. Uh, And, you know, and, and someone did that for me at one time. mm. You know, I didn't, uh, the things that I've learned, uh, say just about personal finance, uh, for example, yeah. uh, I, I learned because somebody turned me on to a, a new way of thinking. And that's, that's, what's exciting about, about the, about being human, I think, is that you have these continuities to explore new ways of thinking, to go on an investigation mm. and say, well, okay, what does that mean? What, 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 what are they talking about? You know, what am I open to learning more about? Yeah. And just uh, FYI, uh, Dave, of the people who were at that table, you were the only one that picked up the ball and ran with it. Right. And I do that. So when I get, when I get advice for people I respect, man, yeah, I I would be crazy not to. Well, you know, I'm just saying, you know, kudos to you because you picked up the ball and you ran with it and that changed your life and your future and the future for your family uh, and even generations to come. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, For sure. You know, so good on you for doing that. But, but that's why, uh, that's why I love, you know, this industry that we're in because most of the people who are in this industry are really kind and generous mm. people who will go out of their way to support and help each other in, you know, whatever way they can. And I think sharing, you know, and as you, as we started talking about at the beginning of like, of just taking for, for everyone listening, like take the time to like scratch the surface of things, you know, get up and dance or, or, or start writing or, you know, do a performance or, or a, a presentation, like start, dabbling in this in whatever interests you and then if you find that that you get a feel for whatever that is there are experts out there michael and amy absolutely and and their team at hbs or 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 andrew davis and michael as well in this book um highly highly recommend it okay i want to be respectful of your time so i'm going to go to the lightning round very quickly complete this sentence for me nice guys and gals finish where they want Oh, I like that. What's a nice book you recommend to the nice makers listening? Oh, I just read an extraordinary book called The Other Black Girl. Hmm. It's a page turner. I read it in two days and uh, I I recommend it. Okay, nice. And how is Michael Port nice to himself? Hmm. The nicest thing I think I do for myself is I ride my bike to and from work every day. And when I ride my bike to and from work, most days I intentionally try to ride it like I'm a little kid. (laughs) When you just rode your bike for the fun of riding your bike without any particular destination in mind, you just ride it. So you'd feel the corners and you'd hop the curbs. So that's how I ride my bike to work. I, I do have a destination. I know I need to get to the office, but I try to feel like I'm a kid on the bike and that's how I'm nice to myself. I love that. And, and folks listening and, and uh, aspiring or working speakers who want to, you know, take, take their, take their craft to the next level. If, and when you end up at HBS, um, uh, uh, 
HBS is in Lambertville uh, and New Hope, which is, you know, across like the Delaware River runs between these two uh, towns. And um, I completely understand. Uh, I can picture you riding your bike through. The, it's absolutely gorgeous. Like the, these, my I wrote in my review for HBS, my only regret at the time was not bringing Heather because it's just such a romantic little, little communities. And it's just, it's, it's beautiful there. Um, so yeah, highly recommend that. Um, if you had a billboard, what would it say? We can do more together than we can alone. Oh, that's great. Michael Port, thank you so much for joining me today. How can our listeners find you? How can everybody find you? They can go to heroicpublicspeaking.com, heroicpublicspeaking.com, and they can send an email to questions at heroicpublicspeaking.com if they want to get in touch with me. Excellent. Well, thank you. And I do want to re- recommend everybody again, the referable speaker. We scratched the surface. We talked about some of the stuff from that book. I absolutely really do recommend it, especially if you are a speaker uh, or you're trying to uh, to improve your business, which I always am. I'm always trying to improve my business. So definitely recommend reading that. And all of Michael's books are fantastic. So thanks again for joining me today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. I would love to include your voice on the show. If you have comments or questions regarding this episode or any episode, whether you might have some nice communications tips of your own, visit friend.nicepodcast.co. There you can record an audio comment and I expect you'll hear it on an upcoming episode theme song is Little Jane May and the end song is Funny Feeling by Alistair Crystal at alistaircrystal.ca and we'll see you next time. Be nice.